Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with your host, Ken Castrico. Please hit that follow button so that you will not miss another episode. Every episode, we interview an ordinary but extraordinary person on their identity journey. An identity journey is your unique journey that you have been taking in your life to get to where you are now. That journey is not only fascinating, but inspiring and encouraging to others because others can relate to your struggles and victories, which can give them hope and get them unstuck. Ultimately, my goal is to empower people to not only understand, but truly embrace their true selves, unlocking their full potential and living a more authentic and fulfilling life. Knowing who you are can change the way you see the world and others around you. When you know who you are, you are powerful. Hi, this is Diane Castrico, Ken's wife. Today's podcast has a twist. Today, Ken's good friend John Trent takes over the podcast and interviews Ken. So I have the opportunity to introduce the guest, who is usually the host. Ken and I met in 1990, and he will tell a little more about that later in the podcast. We have been married for nearly 33 years. We have two children, Ethan, who is 24, and MJ, who is 22. Just before we were married in 1991, Ken left college without a degree and did not return to college until the summer of 2019. Ken earned his degree in the fall of 2021 in communications and entrepreneurship from the University of Nevada, Reno. Ken was born in Orange, California, raised in Orville, California, and moved to Reno the day he graduated from high school in 1985. Ken has always been an entrepreneur at heart, but worked as the operations manager for industrial finishes for nearly 20 years, allowing me to be self-employed from home while we raised our kids. He is now an identity development specialist for our company, Endurance Leadership, and is the vice president of operations and marketing for Pacific Coast Wire and Cable. Ken is an ordained pastor by Father's Heart International and pastored a home church Father's Heart Reno Sparks, and a small church in Tahoe Vista totaling nearly 18 years while working a full-time job. He plays guitar and still leads worship at the Carson City House of Prayer. Ken began running in 2009 and he finished his first trail marathon in 2011 and has completed five ultra marathons including the TRT 50 mile. He loves the running community and has been a dedicated Silver State Strider and volunteer since 2011. So here is Ken and John. All right, well today we are going to do something a little different. And that is, I'm gonna get interviewed on my identity journey, I think. <laughs> and uh, I've got my very good friend, John Trent, here. He agreed to do this. John, thank you for being here. And I'm at your mercy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I was here four months, I think about four months ago when, when, I, when I was a guest on, on yes. your podcast. Yes. So now I guess this is sort of like, who does Ken Castrico think he is? <laughs> sort of <laughs> takeover podcast. This is what this, yeah. what this edition is going to be. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Who do I think I am? Man. <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll find out maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited to do this, you know, just so folks who are listening know, you know, I'm a friend of Ken's. 
I've worked in media for a long time. You know, I've interviewed people a lot over my career. I used to be a sports writer. I'm still a writer. And so probably from about 1986, when I consider 80, yeah, 86, 87, when I became a professional journalist, that's how I've kind of made my living is interviewing people. So I'm really, really excited to have a chance to, to ask my friend a bunch of questions. And I think part of what we're trying to accomplish here is just for people who listen to Ken's podcast to get a better idea of who he is, what his life is about, and what some of his experience have been to this point. So that, you know, as you listen to the, his other interviews, as the podcast continues to evolve, I mean, I think you get a sense of who Ken is as he's interviewing his guests anyway, but I think this will be a, an opportunity to really put the light on Ken and have him stand front and center, and you can find <laughs> out a little bit more about him and, and what kind of makes him tick and, and what really makes him such a fantastic person. I'm honored that you're here, and I'm honored that you agreed to do this. Thank you. Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to jump around here a little bit, okay. so, yeah, so, yeah. so stick with me on okay. this, you know, so we're going to, this is not going to be a linear type of okay. interview, you know, yeah, tell me about when you were in kindergarten at age <laughs> five kind of thing, and then, you know, moving forward. So what I wanted to start with, Ken, because I, I was thinking about this the other day is after you asked me to, to do this. Okay, so I want you to take, take us back to a really important moment in your life where you had a pretty significant illness mm -hmm. a few years ago. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, you were lucky to come out of that alive. Yeah. And I, I do, I'm just curious how that kind of changed your life, how that made you kind of who you are today, and maybe how that maybe crystallized in your mind what was really important as you were, you know, kind of fighting for your life. Yeah, yeah. I had a, a pulmonary embolism, and if you don't know what that is, it's simply a, a blood clot that gets... Basically, it goes through your heart and gets stuck in your pulmonary artery. I think that's how you say it. And I had a routine surgery. I didn't have any blood problems or anything like that. But I had a routine surgery, a, a hernia repair, a sports hernia repair. And I just didn't take to the anesthesia very well. And the next morning, well, two mornings after the surgery, which was an outpatient surgery, I woke up and I was coughing up blood. And I hadn't gotten up yet, so I was actually still laying down, but coughing, and I, I, I just thought, I had a little sniffle before I went and got the surgery, and I thought maybe I turned into some kind of bronchial thing, and I, I stood up out of bed and darn near passed out, couldn't breathe, and so what do you usually do in that? Well, you take a shower. <laughs> That's what I did. I took a shower, and it wasn't getting any better, and so finally, you know, we figured, well, let's go to urgent care, because so we had a two-story house and I started walking down the stairs and I believe that's when I probably, if I was going to die, I was going to be on that stairs. I got halfway down the stairs and all, I almost blacked out. And so I'm still probably passing clots. And so that's, that's the, the nitty gritty of it all. Once I made it past going down the stairs, I, I think my life was saved. I didn't you know there, we weren't in as much danger and I didn't really realize it until afterwards that was what's going on. But it, it impacted me in many, many ways. I'll never forget Andy Pashnik later on after we were seeing him as my general practitioner and he was guiding me through the process after it happened. He looked at me because I, I, was, I was incredibly anxious. I probably had, I'd never had anxiety before in my entire life that I really knew as anxiety. And I was scared to death to die. And... 
he's, I got to tell you, I've never ever had anybody in the medical field treat me so well as I did Andy and his staff. They were amazing. And because I'd had panic attacks and all that kind of stuff, and I'll never forget him telling me after that, he goes, Ken, you just lost all confidence in your body. I actually didn't agree with him at first because I didn't have a concept of what that even meant. But then after a while, I really started to go, oh, wow, I'm an athlete. I've been an athlete ever since I could throw a ball or ride a bike. I've been an athlete. I've just always taken it for granted. You pop out of bed and you can do whatever you want to do. And after a couple of weeks of him saying that, it really sunk in. And I had lost complete, I'm, I'm a believer, I believe in God, I, you know, I've been in church, I've been all this kind of stuff, and I'm still, I'll never forget that, I'll, I'm that feeling like I am afraid to die. I don't, I have, I've never felt like this before. And he was right, I had zero confidence that I could, I don't even, even walk at times, like, because that first couple of months I had an oxygen tank and you just couldn't go from one extreme to the other so fast and just, you're, you're just freaking out. And yeah, I had lost complete confidence in my body. And that is something that was incredibly foreign to me. And, you know, all the athleticism and all the things I've done, the running and all that kind of stuff, the year before I'd finished a 50 miler mm -hmm. and you feel like you're invincible. And I hit, I hit a spot in my life where I wasn't invincible and I didn't really know what I was gonna do and that is not how I operate. I'm usually got a plan and all this kind of stuff. And I had, I had none, nothing. It was completely, completely gone. And it wasn't really completely gone. Yeah. But it, at that time, that's what it felt like. Yeah, it was incredible. What helped pull you through to realize, like, well, to A, realize you, you weren't going to die, and B, to, to kind of get the confidence back mm. in who you were in yeah. your body and all of that? So it took a long time. I had a, a pastor friend of mine, great guy, tells it to you straight. And I wasn't even out of the hospital yet. And so my, my journey is just beginning. And I think one thing that got me through, if anything, got me through starting out was when he said, you will live and not die. Mm. <laughs> like the, like this booming voice, you will live and not die. And I, I probably hung on to that more than anything. That was one thing that really, really gave me a lot of, I could go back to that. I could go back to that. Somebody telling me that they believed I was going to live because I did not. And then like a week after I had the pulmonary embolism, I had a tachycardia AFib. Mm -hmm. And to be honest with you, that's really what freaked me out because when they, they shocked my heart back into rhythm, I felt it and I don't, that was, that was a very disturbing and probably the thing that helped with me the most was that I had no control. My heart rate went from 218 beats a minute down to 60 beats a minute, back up to 250, mm -hmm. down to 180. It was just all over the place and I was scared. And so I had been told I was going to live and not die. And then that happened. And I'm like, oh man, I'm not sure. <laughs> here I am. Yeah, here I am. Yeah. I'm not sure. And then I think after time went on and Dr. Pasternak helping me with biofeedback, you know, if you, you can tell somebody they're not going to die, or you can tell somebody they're not, they're going to be okay. 
but sometimes they need to see the EKG and sometimes they need to see the heart. I, I spent years, literally years, John, looking at my, my watch and my heart. Mm -hmm. I, I would be driving. I would have a, a panic attack because my heart rate would rise above a certain place and I would look at my watch. And, and so I thought, how can I ever get back to running or anything if, I, if my heart goes berserk? And, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I look back now, and I was the one that was causing that to happen. Just because you were getting a little worked up yes. about that. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. I, had, I had three panic attacks that were significant, that two of them put me in the hospital. And then another one that I didn't go to the hospital, almost went to the hospital. And I've never felt out of control like that in my entire life where you really do think you're going to die and your heart's just going berserk and it's a, it's a loop. If anybody knows about this, it's a loop. It just gets worse and worse. And sometimes you have to ride it out. And that was, I've had to do that a couple of times, but I would be in my car and have a panic attack. And I'll never forget, there was a tree limb that fell fallen at our home, mm. Northwest Reno. And I was out there with Diane and it was the first like physical activity I'd done since the event. I saw this tree limb, and then I sawed it into a couple, couple sections. And my heart rate, I looked at my heart rate, and it was like 180. That's like sprinting, it's right? It's like sprinting. <laughs> and I looked at Diane, and I looked at my watch, and it was probably the first time I think I didn't completely freak. Mm. And she said, okay. And then, so I got to give credit where credit's really due there, and that's my wife answer that question and another is my wife my wife got me through by giving me getting me always in the present um what's going on right now are you you know what what do you see right now what do you hear right now what do you taste right now she'd get me back in the present and that's what would heal that that time i gotta say as much as i prayed in my life and read the bible and all that kind of stuff um obviously it was there's no doubt about it my faith was important but it was the practical things that got me through too, which was probably an answer to prayer too, but it was the practical things. Mm -hmm. And then I have to say it was the friends. It was people like you, John. I mean, I don't, I don't know where you got this or what. I would tell you, I don't, I'm not going to run again. Mm -hmm. And you would say, I don't think so. <laughs> or I'm not going to do this again. I, I don't think so, Ken. I just don't think that's... I think you just need to wait it out and just keep going on the path you're on. Just you're, you're on a path. Just just go on the path. And I had several people in my life that would just say, "I think you just need to calm down, and it's going to be fine." So yeah, I remember too. It was sort of like it was interesting watching you. It was like I don't think you're the type of person who would ever have a midlife crisis per se, <laughs> but it kind of felt a little bit like yes, that because I think. You were trying to sort out what was important to you and what wasn't important yeah. to you, what you really wanted to kind of invest yeah. your time and your spirit yeah. into and the things yeah. that didn't really matter. Yeah. How did that kind of, how did that play out? Man. Well, the things I'm doing today are a direct reflection of that. So I've always loved identity. I don't know why. Well, I, I guess I do know why, because people's stories are interesting. And so, yes, I, I loved identity and I never really knew the path that I was going to take with it. I never knew if there was, and you know, I'm not really interested. I'm interested in growing a, like a podcast business and that kind of stuff. I love business, but I, I want to be of service to people. I want to serve people. And so what the event did for me is it laser focused me 
And it took a while. It's not something that happened right away, but it took a long time. And literally, I started to get laser focused in 2021. That's when really things started to hit for me. And so for folks who don't know the history, so that event, your medical event, was how, how many years 2016. before 2016. Mm-hmm. So five years then. Yeah. It took me five years. I didn't even get on a, I didn't run a stitch. I hiked a little bit. And we had some issues with that as far as my heart rate because I was so focused on my heart rate, which I never really was before. Right. And when I ran, I think I ran the Mapitone thing for a while. Was that right? Yeah. So, you know, you'd look at your heart rate for mm-hmm. that training, you know, and zones and stuff and that's, like that. And that's fun. It's, it's never that's like, fun. it's never threatening. No. Like, oh yeah, I got my heart rate up to 175. That's yeah. great as opposed to, I got my heart rate up to 175. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Right. And so, yeah. So I would, I had never been so focused on my heart rate for like life or death. And so when I would go out and do something, and the heart rate would go up. It would be pretty interesting how I would react to it. And, but I didn't get on a bike or nothing really consistently until 2000 and I want to say 20, right? COVID hit. Right before COVID hit, I started riding my bike to work. Mm-hmm. That was the breakthrough. Mm-hmm. The event focused me on what I wanted to do. It really did. What I really wanted to do was I wanted people to understand that who they are is super important and that their story means something. And I didn't know which way I was going to go. And then 2021, I actually interviewed six people on camera and put it down and never picked it up again until this last year in April. You know, that, that's not an uncommon story, right? No, I mean, no. as, as we try to get focused on, on something like that, I mean, I liken it to like, you know, somebody who they have that novel that they, that they work <laughs> on and they're right, they write it for a while and then they stick it in the drawer for a while, yeah. then they pull it out and then they yeah. stick it in the drawer. Most people, it stays in the drawer and never comes out again. But you, you decided after doing those six interviews and waiting a little bit, little bit more time then finally it was time it was time yeah and it was time because and i got some coaching on it too i actually hired somebody to help me you know i said i want to do this podcast and i want to develop um some frameworks and i want to write a book and i want to speak on this stuff and and it wasn't like in the past i've had goals were money goals or you know career goals it wasn't like that it was something deeper, no matter what I was going to do it. And just had to get over some of that, what do they call that, imposter syndrome, and <laughs> is this really going to help anybody in the world? And, you know, I used to say to myself all the time, there's a thousand people doing, you know, identity things, and there's a thousand people that are coaches, and they all got a little niche and the things that they do, and what do I have to offer? It, once I launched it and we did what we did, it was scary, but it wasn't threatening. Does that make sense? It was going to be okay. But it was hard. It was hard to start. Yeah. What would you say looking back now? So what was the hardest part? Was it just getting over that fear or was it, was it more of a mechanical kind of thing? I mean, you know, you, <laughs> we, right before we started, I mean, you know, I am like not very technologically inclined and there's this thing with a bunch of, bunch of lights and levers to it. So I have no idea what it's doing. And obviously you've mastered all of that. I mean, what, what was kind of like the biggest hindrance for you as you got started? It wasn't that. I can pretty much figure anything out. I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. The hardest part, the hardest part is 
is anybody really going to like this? Is anybody really going to listen? I mean, is this really that unique? Am I really that unique? Am I really, am I really supposed to, you know, all those questions. Probably the biggest one, though, is, is anybody going to listen? Why would anybody listen to this? And every time I said that, every time I believed that, I've got people like my pastor, Tom Greiner, he would say, man, you got to do it. I would tell people, I think I've probably told you several times, and you'd say, yeah, you got to do that. Diane, biggest cheerleader on the planet, mm -hmm. you got to do that. Because I think there's something there. And every time I heard that, because we've heard other people be interviewed on podcasts, and a lot of times it's famous, or it's, you know, the crime podcasts are huge. <laughs> They're infamous, you know, <laughs> people down there. But I'm just looking for the ordinary guy who I know has a story that I know thousands of people will relate to and maybe even help somebody. So, yeah, I was terrified that it, that it would fall on deaf ears. One of the things I remember when you were coming um, back and getting your health back, not long after you'd gotten out of the hospital, I remember you shared, like, for a while, and I found it interesting now, for a while you, were, you thought about you wanted to go to Africa mm -hmm. and you wanted to minister in Africa yeah. and help people there, which I thought was wonderful. And I thought it was a really good example of your, your big heart and what you do. And I'm thinking now, it's like now in a way, that's what you're doing. I mean, you know, you're, you know, from, from that time where you knew you wanted to go out and share something with someone, right? Mm -hmm. You know, five, six, seven years ago. And now you are. It's obviously, it's not in Africa, right. but it's like, you know, you, you're finding stories and you're sharing them for the greater good. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's an interesting thing to think about how you, that's what you wanted to do. Kind of, that was your instinct coming out of, you know, a, a near-death experience yeah. was not like, oh my God, what about me? It was like you wanted to go out and help others. Yeah. And that's kind of what you're doing with this. I think, and the dream of Africa is still there. We know we have a TV program in Africa. You're big in Africa, I'm actually. Big. I'm, yeah. I'm the biggest white guy <laughs> on the crack up. Tom and I, who do an entrepreneurial program, which is just, it was a lot of fun to do, but I've never been to Africa. Never, not once. It was to share from, if I can encourage someone to do what they were born to do. And another thing that inspired me too is that I've known so many people that are doing something they don't like to do. And I have kind of a mantra at work because, you know, the team at work, I tell them, hey, you know, we spend eight hours a day, sometimes the best hours of the day we spend with each other. And boy, you had better like it. And so, yeah, I want people to, to really fall into the thing that they were really supposed to do in their life, you know? It's, a, it's been such a pleasure to find out people's journeys and the things that they're really interested in. And that's been really fun this past six months or so, seven months, to just discover what people are, who they are, and how their heart, where their heart went. And, and it seems like everybody that I, almost everybody that I've interviewed, almost every single person has had that thing in their life where they've gone, oh, this is super important. I'm going to go here. Mm -hmm. That just makes me quit right now. Yeah. Be good. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of things that have been important in your life. So obviously, you know, I mean, there are a number of different things. Uh, family is super important to mm -hmm. you. And I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned your wife, Diane, and the influence mm -hmm. that she's had upon you. Let me 
have you conjecture for a moment, who would you be if you had never met her? And if you had never married her, what, what would your life look like now? I would probably be a drunk. <laughs> no offense to anybody who's got a problem with alcohol or anything, but I'm an addictive personality. I was a knucklehead before I met her. I had probably started getting my life on track right before I met her. I was in college, you know. I, I shouldn't say I would be a drunk. I, I would be probably a very, a very lost soul. I wouldn't have had somebody who believed in me. And I think that now, you know, we all, you never know, right? But looking back at it, I was a knucklehead. And I had fun being a knucklehead, don't get me wrong. It was a lot of fun. We've talked about some of those times, you know, you and R. I enjoyed the college life. I loved to party and I loved to have a great time. And, but when I met Diane, I knew for one, I knew one thing. I was going to marry her. I didn't even know her. Mm. I had never even met her before. I looked at her side view. She was sitting, having a drink with a friend. And I told my buddy Moulet, who was with, with me at the time, and I was, a, I was a waiter at Olive Garden. I looked over through the plants and those plastic plants. And I looked through and I saw the side of her face and I said, Moulet, I'm going to marry this woman. Wow. And I can't tell you, I didn't know God at the time. Mm. I didn't have any clue. I, but I do think I was on a path of, that wasn't very good. Didn't, I wasn't focused. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted. I knew one thing I was in college for at that time, and that was to find my wife. Mm. And so, it, and I kind of think now looking back at it, never found a wife. I'm not really sure what I'd be today. I'd probably be pretty lost. So she's everything that I've gotten that's good from life. My spirituality, everything has really come from that relationship. Obviously my kids and, and, but that's where it all started with her. My sense has always been that, you know, you get a lot, you derive a lot of strength and a lot of confidence from her, you know, we'd like, mm -hmm. I would imagine that what she thinks kind of supersedes everything. You probably run everything that you do by her. You probably, you guys probably discuss a lot of, you know, ideas about this, that, or the other thing. Yeah. What is it about her that, that brings out the best in you? Diane has this ability with me and with other people to shoot it straight. <laughs> She's a straight shooter. She is somebody who doesn't mince words, and I needed that big time. And you're right. We do. We talk about everything. You know, we got in a bit of financial trouble like every young couple does, and overspent on the credit cards and did all this stuff, got ourselves in pretty, pretty deep debt, pretty, pretty bad. I'll never forget that she was so, even though she wasn't the problem, I was the problem. I was the one that got us there. I mean, she'll, she takes responsibility for it, but it really was me. Mm -hmm. I had just no clue about finances. And I'll just never forget having her look at me and, and she said, we're going to be fine. It's going to be great. We'll do it together. And that's my wife. She just, no matter what, it's shoot straight. She tells you what you need to hear sometimes, even though you don't want to hear it. But she's always been, had kid gloves with me and has always known that, that I'm a fighter and I'll make it through. She's always believed in me, no matter what. I don't know if I answered your question, but 
the reason why we work so well together. <laughs> Somebody said, she's the peanut butter to my jelly. <laughs> 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 when you find that soulmate, that person who, I mean, you know, we screw up as guys and partners. We screw up and we don't always do it right. And, and there's somebody there that no matter what, until death do us part, that has been her strength and her belief in me has been amazing. Yeah. You, you two have an amazing relationship. And I think anybody who knows the two of you, see they immediately see that. I mean, you know, you guys are in many ways bound at the hip, but not in a way that's codependent necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think it's more, you know, encouraging of one another. I think just as she has encouraged you, you've yeah. always encouraged Diane yes. with pursuing whatever dream she, yes. she has as yeah. well. Yeah. In fact, that's a, it's very interesting you say that because I have had a dream to start a business or be in business and I have done businesses along the way, but I had a dream to not have a job. I mean, I've wanted to have my own company for a long, long time. And I wanted, one of the things that Diane knows about herself is that her passion, she's a bookkeeper, is not, that's not her passion. Her passion is her family, her kids, me, her mom and dad and her family, close friends. That's her, that's her, that's her passion. And when the kids were real little and she's only worked outside the home when our kids were growing up for a very short period of time. And she started her own company. And so I kept my job so she could live her dream of being with the kids. And, and it was tough, and, but I wanted to give her that because she is a complete person when she's around her family, when she's around her kids. Mm -hmm. She reminds me a lot of Jill, your <laughs> wife. Yeah. yeah. They're, when they're around their family, you just, there's, I mean, we love our families, but there's something special. There's something there that's just intangible that I know Diane is a, she's just a much better human when she's around her family, when she's around her kids. Yeah. 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 And that you, you definitely see that as well, for sure. Yeah. I, one of my theories, one of my working theories, and you know, you may blow this out of the water right now is I really feel like, you know, women are an important part of our lives, obviously. And I think, you know, as you just said, as you just stated, Diane's an important person in your life. My wife is an, Jill is an important person in my life. I wanted to ask you about your mother mm. and what influence you felt your mother, you know, who, you know, you had to deal with losing her. Yeah. Um, and how that kind of helped form and shape who you are. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I was 13 when I lost my mom. And the crazy thing about that is that um, I have to look at pictures to remember her. I only have a few. Um, that was a really messy time in my life. Um, you know, my dad, who he had to go through some really, really amazing things with my mom. My mom had multiple sclerosis. And she got multiple sclerosis when we were very young. And that was back in the early 70s. And they didn't really understand what multiple sclerosis, I mean, they understood what it was, but not to the level they do now. There wasn't a lot, there wasn't like today where there's some right. medication and there's some, there's some treatment that you can right. have, yeah. So she had a onset back in the early 70s that was pretty powerful. and. They pretty much, I don't know if they diagnosed her at that time. They thought she may have had a brain tumor because it's, I guess sometimes it can present something like that. <clears throat> well, in the late 70s, she had another lapse. So she went into remission and then she came back. When it came back, it came on really strong. 
And now they categorize all this stuff, and I have no idea. I just know it was the most aggressive kind of multiple sclerosis. Or even, so she shook constantly. And some of the, unfortunately, some of the most powerful memories I have of my mom is her being incredibly frustrated. Mm. She shook constantly. I would say she died in 83, and by 1980, she was pretty much debilitated. There's, she couldn't walk or anything on her own. And she sat in a chair, and my dad had a really tough time with that, and he had to make some decisions that he doesn't like and to this day probably regrets, but it wasn't good for him, and it wasn't good for us. It was really tough. And, you know, we've, we've settled a lot of that. It's, it's all under the bridge right now. It's, it's all good. But I felt for my dad. I really did. And the memories I have of my mom, I have memories of my, my mom was the most giving person I'd ever met in my life. I could go back and I could tell you that there wasn't a kid. She loved kids. There wasn't a kid that came into our life that she wouldn't provide for. Hmm. She'd go out and buy them. I mean, if it was a aunt or a cousins or you, you name it. Kids, somebody off the stray, she would buy clothes for them, food, you name it. She was always, she loved kids and she had such a giving heart. And she, unfortunately, I don't remember too much about all of that. Stories I've heard. I just remember her being very frustrated. And it came across as anger and it came across as being frustrated. And that's about all I remember of my mom I don't have any super fond memories of her that I can actually key into and remember. Um, I, I can take that back. I remember her. We were a water ski family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you around Lake Orville. Lake Orville. I grew up in Orville, mm-hmm. California, and Lake Orville. So she was always. That was back when smoking was okay. All, it seemed like all parents did at the right? time, right? I don't right. know how we made it out alive. <laughs> Secondhand smoke. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because she smoked a couple of funny stories about my mom. So there is some, there is something in that funny. She would smoke a cigarette while she was skiing. Wow. Yeah. That, Which is that a takes talent some, that I never... That takes some athletic ability, actually, I what, think. Yeah. Yeah. She was quite the athlete. <laughs> and they smoked. We just don't even equate that today. It's just like... It's, just, it's like, like so weird. And... You know, my mom, she was in the hospital in the late 70s, and that's back when they let you smoke in the hospital. Imagine that. So my mom, she had a tube because she shook. She was in the Mm -hmm. hospital. She wasn't coming out of the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so they let her smoke in the hospital. She had a a cigarette on a roach clip and this tube, and she would smoke the cigarette. Do do whatever it takes. Man, I tell you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, she was that gal. I, I got my determination and everything. I got. I know I got it from her. My dad's a determined person too, but she was determined. And and I just know that people loved her so much. Hmm. Anybody who knew my mom, they would always just say she was just the most incredible person. And I know we all miss her. My dad misses her. I miss her. My brother, he misses her. It's been a long time, but I still look at Diane sometimes and I go, man, I really, I really wish you would have known my mom. Mm. And I wish I would have known my mom better. But I think the Lord took her in a really interesting way. She was in the hospital, and my, there wasn't anything that if my mom saw a sweet, she wanted it. Mm. 
And she didn't really die of multiple sclerosis, even though she probably was going to pass from that. She choked on a cookie because she shook so much. That's what really happened. And I, I think in all, if we could just agree on one thing is she's out of pain. Mm-hmm. And so sad as that is, it, there's another part of it that you're like, hmm, okay, sir, time. She needed to go because it wasn't, it wasn't good. So, yeah. Do you think and this is maybe psychologizing things a little too much. So if I'm, if I'm way off base here, just let me know. Do you think like as a boy and a teenager, early teenager watching your mom kind of lose control, do you think any of that had to do with as you were dealing with your own illness and the fear of losing control? Do you think you might have subconsciously maybe have harkened back a little bit to... There's not a doubt in my mind, John, that... So on my mom's side of the family, disease runs is ran wild. I only know of one living relative. Mm. And so you... I saw people go into hospitals and never come out. I mean, I had a, a, a girlfriend in college that had a tumor on her pituitary gland, and she went in the hospital. I thought, she ain't ever coming out. Mm-hmm. And I did, what, I did what most men do that are freaked out, or women too, is I didn't go in the hospital and see her. That's such a wrong thing, but it was real. That is so wrong of me to do. I wish I could tell her right now. I get, I'm so sorry. But I was terrified. It's, it, I don't think that's surprising, yeah. Ken. I mean, I think a lot of people, yeah. they, we have to deal with those kinds of really yeah. conflicting feelings. You know? You're exactly right. I mean, the last place I ever want to go is a hospital. <laughs> and so, yes, that had everything, I mean, a lot to do with it. And to know that, you know, am I going to be the next one to go? And so it was a test of my faith, and it was a test of everything. Just because they didn't come out of the hospital doesn't mean I'm not going to. And so, but that wasn't easy for me at the time. Heck no. So yes, very much so. You just mentioned faith a moment ago. And, you know, I mean, that's a really important part of your life. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, has it always been an important part of your life? Did you grow up super religious or was there a moment, there was there a certain moment in your life where suddenly it became, you know, into greater focus for you and it became something that was super, because it is super important to you now, but how has that played out throughout your life? No, I wasn't super religious at all growing up. My mom believed in God. My dad was a recovered Catholic. (laughs) And his mom, my Mm. grandma probably still is rolling over in her grave because (laughs) we weren't Catholic. (laughs) That poor guy, I think he got hammered every single time we went and visited her, my grandmother, who I love dearly. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, no, in fact, <laughs> this is funny. Um, there was a, a friend of mine, um, her name at the time was Tamsin Fuller. And um, uh, we were in first grade, kindergarten, first grade, all that kind of, you know. And I had a crush on her. Mm-hmm. And she went to church. So I ah. was a Christian. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Wasn't anywhere near, but I was then because I wanted to get the girl. You know, I was just infatuated with this girl, and you know, we were, you know, you, te- you just you know, 
elementary school crushes, you know, sure. or whatever. Those are the best. Yeah, they are. <laughs> and then I met Diane, and we, we didn't go to church. I, I didn't know God or nothing like that. I, but when we met, we had some friends that went to church. And the funniest story of me going to church is the very first time I went. And I went with Diane, and I went to a church here in, in Sparks. And I told Diane, I said, anybody so much as wiggles in this church, I'm out. <laughs> they better not touch me. I was like, boy. I was like, you're, you know. Yeah, you're almost, sounds almost like you're skeptical yeah, at this point. Oh, yeah. yeah, I was skeptical. <laughs> and, and there's a long story behind that, but it's not, not important. The, the important thing was the guy that was there that I was terrified of <laughs> wasn't there that day because <laughs> I knew he, went, he was the pastor. And I was like totally skeptical of that guy. I did not. Didn't want to go there at all. And our friends went there, and we thought, oh, okay, we'll go. Well, that kind of planted a seed. And as sometimes spiritual things happen, sooner or later we were going there. And then Diane and I got baptized together before we got married. And we, we gave our lives over to God. And everything changed for me. Having my wife, who was I respected so much, honestly, having her become somebody who would believe in a higher power. Mm. I was like, well, there's something here because I had that much respect for her. Mm-hmm. And so God got me. I don't know how to explain it other than he showed me that I had purpose, that I had a destiny. I'd seen too many TV things and I was super skeptical. Mm-hmm. And when it became personal and I had that relationship and that grew over a long period of time. But when I felt something, I felt something the minute I, I let my life go and hand it over to him. Yeah. I felt something and it wasn't, my life wasn't great afterwards. I don't like it when people say you do this and then your life's going to be perfect because usually it goes to a hell in a handbasket after that because you start figuring out you don't know stuff and you may be lost. Not everybody's lost, but I was lost. I was really lost. And so, and I knew one thing. I knew that I couldn't rely on Diane for everything. And that took, that was a long period of time where I relied on Diane for a lot. And I knew that I couldn't do that. I had to find something that gave me the power and the, and the, the ability to, to do life. That, you know, we don't have, as we all know, we don't have one day guaranteed to us. So I gave my life over because I saw that I saw something I'd never seen in myself that God showed me mm-hmm. and that I was worthy. And that took a while, but I saw a glimpse of it, and I had to have more. And that, that's really what happened to me is I, I turned my life over because I knew that, that I needed help and that I couldn't rely on Diane to do that. So I had to, do, I had to figure out how to have that power, how to, how to tap into something that was bigger than me. Yeah. And so, yeah. I'm kind of blown away by that in a lot of ways because I think there's always sort of like this misconception about faith that somehow faith just kind of answers all questions. Yeah. But really, for you, it sounds like it created almost this sense of, if not freedom, then agency about like what you're going to do and, and how you're going to do this. And even though you know you love your wife and she's been a central part of your life, yeah. there's so much of this now that you can do on your own. Yeah, and me and God. And um, me and God and Diane, you know, that's how I think about it. Um, and I'm, um, I, I never 
truly bought into the religion side of things. I don't like religion, never have. I think that too many people are telling, too many men tell other men and women, both ways, all the way around, how they should be, what they should do. And I decided that I was gonna go put my faith in God and the Bible, and I was gonna go there. I hope that everyone understands. I am not against the church. I love the church. Yeah. I don't like religion. You've, and that's, you know, it's, it's interesting because you've, you've, you and I, we've talked about this many times. Yes. And that is a consistent talking point, you yes. know, as long as I've known you, which is more than a decade now, as we've, yeah. as we've talked about this stuff, you've always said that. Yeah. Religion has hurt a lot of people. And there are awesome churches out there that aren't religious. They're relationship-based. And that's the most important part is because if you don't have a relationship, let's say your wife, you don't have a relationship with your wife, it ain't going to last. Mm -hmm. There's nothing there that will make it last unless you have a relationship with that person. And so, and it's no different with me and God. We have a relationship. And there obviously is things you, I mean, we talk about that all the time, the moral code. And there's a moral code in us. And I believe that was put there by our maker. So... Yeah, it, it is really important. I tell people that all the time. Then they look at me like I'm crazy. They're like, like, yeah, that's, you know, for a religious guy, that's a really strange, strange thing to say. Thing to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But the relationship, because, and I, I do, I look, I look at it exactly, I look at my wife. It, if we don't have a relationship, it is almost religion, or it could be rules bound, or there's all other kind of words you can say. And we've probably met people like that that have no relationship in the relationship. And so that's, I mean, really, honestly, that's how God got me because I'm a relational person and always have been. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely one of the undercurrents in your, in your life. You know, I'm curious, too, because I always have to come back to the running thing, yeah. uh, especially over the past year or so. You know, you've made a real concerted effort, and it's been really a cool thing to see as, you know, you've, you've gotten back in, into not only training but racing and running ultras again. Why at this point in your life have you felt like it's an, an important thing for you to do? Well, first of all, I thank Diane because she, oof. Hmm. it's not fair, John. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start with this. <clears throat> I found who I was when I started to run. After knowing God, I would say he gave me running as a way to process. Without the running before I had my medical event, I'm not sure I would have been able to process. I learned how to process on the trail. And I mean, really, because, I mean, we say it's a, relationships are huge and we build the relationships, but when we're running, you well know this, so you're, you're a different level runner than I am and you don't run with a lot of people sometimes because you're, 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 you have your own speed, your own thing. Mm -hmm. Well, when I ran with the group before in 2010 or 11 when I joined, I was alone because I didn't, there wasn't really anybody that was really close to me that, I remember Sherry tweet, she would just look at me because we, we were kind of the same runner. She's probably a little faster than me, but she would look at me and go, it's time for me to be alone. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say, yes, ma'am. <laughs> okay, I get it. You want to be alone. Yeah. And it taught me to be alone. Running taught me how to be alone. So back, and I, it was a very, very big thing for me was to be alone. Mm -hmm. I did not like it. Mm -hmm. And so I get alone. I would 
talk to God and I would talk to the trees and <laughs> whatever. And it, and it got me to get things out of my mind and process. And that's why I fell in love with running and I fell in love with the people. And so I ran TRT 50 mile in 2015. And then I came down crazy, like three months after that was some kind of back thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I can't even, so weird. It wasn't, wasn't like after the race, it was like three months after the race. And it put me up for well, a year. And then I had the event happen, mm-hmm. the pulmonary embolism. And then running got delayed big time. And actually, like I would, I would come to you and say, I just, I think I'm just gonna have to give up. I don't know if I can, after all of the anxiety, then I had the back thing and it was just really bothersome. And then I started riding the bike and I think you and I talked about that. And during all this time in the running group and Silver State Striders, you know, I never stopped doing the races and the, the volunteering, the being aid station. A, being an active part yeah. of the, just the, the organizational Just the organization, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, because it's, that was part of my life. I mean, there is no greater people on the planet that you and I both know. They're just amazing salt of the earth people to be around. And so never really leaving the group. Some people leave. Yeah. And there's a cycle. There's, there's a, a cycle. Yeah, for yeah. three, four, five years, and yeah. then folks they, go on to other things. They go on to other things. You couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> I wasn't going away. And, and it gave me so much life and joy. And I wasn't there necessarily to, I don't know, wasn't about a running accomplishment at that time. It was, there, it was about the people. Mm-hmm. And so, and the people I love dearly and have fun with. And so... <laughs> When I got sick and then I had the back thing and then when I rode my bike to work and I went, I don't know how much, 12 miles or whatever. You did a lot. I remember, I remember stalking you on Strava <laughs> yeah. and then seeing, yeah. you know, it'd be like, oh, Ken rode his bike today. Yeah, it'd be like 12 miles and you do it pretty quickly too. Yeah. Yep. It was, yeah, I was getting faster and faster mm-hmm. at it. And I'm thinking, huh, I wonder if I could get back and running. I wonder if I could run again. Because my back wasn't hurting me, and I did. I stopped riding my bike because of my back too. And I thought, huh. And the thought of not being able to run again, I never saw it. I never saw that. Even though I would give, try to give up because of the pain. It was excruciating. I always thought, I don't know if I. I'm not going to give up that dream. I wanted to so bad. I would come to you, and I'd say, I just don't think it's in the cards. I just, I think I just need to be okay with not. No, I'm not sure. And I'm not sure that's that's true. And it took someone like you to, I, I, I hung on to hope from that. I just hung on to hope. And I would pray. Mm-hmm. God, just release it out of my mind. Just get it out of my mind so I don't have to think about it anymore. And so two years ago, we asked Brandon Day to train us. And he asked me why. And I said, because I want to run again. I want to do it. And I said, and I believe in you. And I, I think you can help me. And John thinks I can run. <laughs> I think that's what I said. And so I think I need to get strong because I think I can, I think I can do it with my back if I get strong. Mm-hmm. I think I could, I could achieve the goal. And the goal was to run Western States. It's always been the goal. Mm-hmm. There's been no other goal. Stanley was my pacer in my 50-mile and I met Stanley the first 
ever time I ever went to Western States, he and I marked the last seven miles of the course of Western States. He walked me through his entire trip over that mountain from Squaw Valley into Auburn. And when we walked through the When we walked through the arch to go into the track, because we didn't have to mark the track, right? Yeah. But he took me to there, and he said, I ran through here, and I can't even, I can't even tell you what he said. Yeah. I was a mess. Hmm. And he goes, you'll just never, there's nothing like it. And I was in, before we even got to Roby Hill, I was like, I don't know what this is. I don't, I don't care. I don't know how to do it. I don't think I can. Maybe I can. I was just, you know how that goes. Yeah, I could probably do this. And I, I probably said a hundred times, I don't know. <laughs> that is a long way. <laughs> and that dream, that there has never left me. I've never forgotten it. It's still as powerful as it is today. And I'll never forget it. I'll just never forget the feeling of being able to accomplish something like that. And then and then why why would do it? I would do it. It's a gift. It was a gift to me. It would be a gift that I would like to give back to my maker and to the people who believed in me. And it just, it's a, it's a gift. To be able to do that, it's a gift. And it saddens my heart sometimes when people see it as a burden. When I couldn't run and I saw people cursing running, I'd almost get indignant and angry inside. So you don't understand. People have dreams of doing this stuff that can't do it. They physically can't do it. Don't do that. Please don't do that. It is so important. And, and I think something you said when we had our interview, when I interviewed you on the podcast, you said some people are running from something. There's no doubt. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people are running to something. Mm-hmm. And, I th- you know, and, it, and it is good therapy. And it should be considered therapy at times. And I thought... That's just so true. So I got back into it because I had hope that if I worked hard, I could get back in and I could run. And I have never been so blown away for this period of time in training as I was Brandon Day. He believed in me. He used to say, I don't want to kill you. He used to say, I don't want to kill you. Because he, he thought I was fragile with the whole mm-hmm. medical thing and everything. Mm-hmm. I had to convince him, I'm, I'm going to be good. You know, I'm going to be okay. But when we ran across the finish line at, at the first ultra back. Which was Catalina. Catalina. Mm-hmm. Last January, mm-hmm. I trained to that ungodly winner. I just remember crossing the line going, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do it. And I, I, was, I was hurting. I was hurting for certain. I was, I ran that last couple miles down that flipping pavement and straight downhill and my back was killing me. And I thought, you know what? If I can go 30 miles, I can do it three more times. <laughs> and, and that's kind of how I am. I'm going to go to the top of a mountain. I don't care how I get there. I'll just go. I'll get it done. And I owe that to you and I owe it to my, my father in heaven and I owe, it, I owe it to my wife and Brandon. Brandon is... He's just been so good for me. He believed in me too, and I wasn't too sure. And so those are all the reasons I came back. And I got to tell you, 
you can be on the outskirts of the running side of it and be in the serving side, and there's always something you just miss. There's always something you're miss, and I don't. I didn't live my life missing it. But when you guys would talk or the runs and the Thursdays and Tuesdays and the Saturdays and there's that camaraderie when you get there with a run that everybody's they're like drunk with endorphin and joy and you know you got somebody that's you just sit and you picnic afterwards and mm-hmm. it's there's, there's nothing like it <laughs> so it's true yeah and i i just find it fascinating that you know you, you're a relationship driven person and the way you described that, it was not only, you know, your own sort of journey, but you mentioned some of us, and in particular, Brandon, the role that, that Brandon played in help, helping bringing you back. How do you foresee your running going forward? I mean, what, what do you hope to do over the next couple of years? How do you, how do you see that playing out? And is it going to continue to be kind of re- relationship-based as much as, you know, training and everything else-based? Yeah. <clears throat> no, definitely relationship-based. And that's where, you know, my wife, she's resigned to the fact that pretty much April through June, July, actually April through July, is running season. It's aid station season. Mm-hmm. My aid station wife, Casey Green, <laughs> I got to mention her. Another she, important relationship. Another in very, life. very important relationship. <laughs> Michelle Edmondson, very, very important. Your wife, Jill. I mean... These, Kathy Mastis, Al, all these people, I, I don't want to mention too many more names because I know I'll forget somebody. It's just such a, a different way of looking at things now. So that, that time with being with the aid stationing is something that's like a, it's not a job. It's a, it's a labor of love. Mm-hmm. We get to do it. And, um, and being involved the way we are now, we have some of the most amazing people on the planet that help us do these races. So I can't even fathom not doing that. It's just still to this day, I can't fathom not doing it. I mean, someday we'll probably retire. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> when we're about 80, I maybe. know, right? <laughs> Crotchety. Angry. They'll put us away because we're angry. We're all grouchy or whatever. I don't know. Ken, you know, what does it mean to you? You know, we haven't talked about your kids much, you know, who are great. And in particular, you know, Mary, who's an athlete herself, mm-hmm. the fact that she... I think has always encouraged you and continues to encourage you. I think she would like to see you run these great distances probably as much as anybody. What does that mean to you to know that your child, you know, is is encouraging of of you running these big races? Oh, you're going to make me cry again. So I go back to when I got sick and Mary's daddy could do anything. She was there when I finished my 50 miler. My son was there in spirit. But he wasn't there at the, at the end of the race, which no big deal. I mean, but, you know, Mary was there. And so we got to share that a moment. And, you know, you bond over those kind of things. And her dad could do anything. And, you know, that poor girl, she, when I got sick, she saw a dream of Western states going down in flames. You know, really. And her dad wasn't impenetrable. And so it's a reality that comes that she's a teenager, too. She, you know, I can remember asking you, did you have any troubles with the girls you know, Katie or Annie, when, when they were in, you know, that, that high school, everything's going on age, and you said, you know, not much, but there was a little bit of distance at times. So to be honest with you, one of the motivations deep down inside 
was the was the day that I I called Mary up and said, "Your your dad's gonna run again. He's gonna go do a, a 50k." And I can just the sound of her voice was huge. Mm-hmm. And just to be able to give her that gift that her dad's going to be okay and that I'm not impenetrable. We don't have a guaranteed day on this planet, but while I'm here, we're going to run and we're going to run far. Hmm. And another thing, you know, you don't think, you know, the boys and my boy, Ethan, you don't think he's listening sometimes, but, you know, the other day he was bragging to his friends about how much I run. And uh, and it was just so cool because you know you don't think he you know maybe it's not cool or whatever but they're taking notes the entire time. He you know he was a rock when I got sick. My son was a rock when I got sick. He was always there. Mary was a little distant, which was hard, but Ethan was a rock, and he would always he was always there for me. He was talking to me, and we went on a road trip. I'll never forget the road trip we went on. We went down to see my brother and. After I got sick, and I'll, I'll never forget that time ever because we had we had such good conversation, and he's a he's so smart, such a good guy, he's such a good dude, and I I think it was huge for me to run that race. I did it for me first. I'll be very honest with that. I did it for me first, and then it was for Mary, and and kind of to show everybody that you know there's other people out there too like me that we're not, we're not done. Yeah. Yeah. So it's safe to say like in the next couple of years, there's a hundred mile, a hundred mile or a hundred mile finish out there waiting for you. So we will leave it up to the finishing to my guts and determination and, (laughs) and just, you know, we never know. Right. So I've put the finishing thing. It's, I don't, I talk about, I'm not going to talk about not finishing because I don't, I think that we, we run the race we're supposed to run. You just don't know sometimes. Don't know, the right? variables some days. There's so many variables. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Especially when you go above like the 50 yeah. mile. You, I mean, I was I was injured on my 50 mile and finished. Mm-hmm. That probably wouldn't have happened on 100 or 100K maybe. So I've never run 100 thing above 50. So we're all in brand new territory. So I am crossing my fingers that I get into Waldo. Next year in August. Craig Thornley, if you're listening, Craig there you Thornley, go. Yes. The race the race director of Waldo Hunter K yes. is also the race director for Western States. That's Craig, right. if you're listening, if Ken you're listening. would love to be, get into your race. We're just putting it in your ear. <laughs> and um and I'll continue to do shameless plugs. So Waldo in, in August and then uh, get a qualifier for states and then we all know how that works. So you know, we'll see. I'm gonna be up against some pretty stiff competition for the following year because i just know all those guys this year that were in the lottery and our little drawing and they got in and congratulations to rebecca yeah rebecca winter who got our spot for this year for the forest hill aid station that the silver state striders do yeah yeah Yeah. super excited for her she's pumped her life just changed (laughs) so and if they're all these years watching people go through this you know andy strauska I mean, a Jeffrey, who's just a, a rock, you know, Lauren Watts and Jimmy and uh, with Lauren running in the race and your mm-hmm. girls running and you running and just storied. It's a storied event that it's in my heart forever. And you know what? 
even if I never get a chance to run it, it'll be in my heart forever. Yeah. And it will always give me joy, yeah. no matter what. That's really cool. Speaking of giving a sense of joy, you know, the space that you've created with this podcast is, you know, already I think those who listen to it can, can tell that people share a lot of really, really cool things. And I think, Ken, I think you, you know, years and years ago, the 49er coach, Bill Walsh, they asked him about like what coaching was. And he said, it's my bliss. You know, it's, it's what I do, right? It's what makes, made him whole and made him happy. That was following his bliss was coaching. And I think you're following your bliss by doing this podcast. How do you see this podcast kind of evolving? Now, now that you've got it going and it's not just stuck in the drawer, you do, do the six and then it's just there and then you come back to it. I mean, this is a part of your life and this is, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a frequency to it, a certain rhythm as you're, as you're cranking these things out and finding yeah. interesting guests. How yeah. would you like to see this evolve? So I see it evolving. So right now, really, we're mainly talking with people that are in, in running and in athletics running. And we'll have some outliers here and there, for sure. I'll have people that are spiritually minded, because the way I, way I roll, too, I, I like that side of it. And all. But most of them will be athletes, people that run. And most of, a lot of them will be ultra runners. And we've decided to go that way for a number of different reasons. One... I relate to them and I don't know a ton of ultra runners that right now I just really believe that they have stories to tell. It's a chatty bunch. It's a chatty <laughs> bunch. They're raw. Yeah. And this whole thing about processing out on the trail, it's true. They all process. What brought me to this whole thing was ordinary but extraordinary people. And that's what I see in the running group. They're a bunch of really mm -hmm. ordinary people that have jobs just like everybody else. They're, they're, you know, most of them aren't trying, they're not trying to, they're not making money doing this sport. They're, they're just out there because they love the people. They love, they love the run and they, they love competing against themselves. And there's something about that that brings out this. I mean, I don't have to tell you this because you wrote the book on it, but <laughs> it brings out the human spirit that, I mean, the community and everything. So it's just where, if I had to be so spiritual, it's where God's got me right now. It's like, these are the people that have been really, been really highlighted to me. And, and they all have a tremendous story to tell. And I think one of the most important things is I've had a lot of people come up to me and say, that really touched me. <laughs> that really helped me. Or that story was amazing. But you know something impactful happened when they listen to somebody else's story because we're not that much different. We're all pretty much the same. We just have different things we've went through. But we all have the fears. We all have the stuff. We all struggle with who we are. And one cool thing about somebody who's been in the trenches and who's de had defeat, and one of the things that ultra running, mm -hmm. I can it to travel and that is because you are traveling and that is you have to think on your feet and very rarely do you ever get there alone and so whenever I'm gonna write a book someday and it's gonna be that it's gonna be on that you know you have to think on your feet and you never get there alone <laughs> defeat and disappointment is a part of life and it's how we deal with it and you know I, I did forget to say that I went through a tremendous amount of therapy 
after my event, professional therapy. It took Andy Pasternak to really help me with that, that you're going to need some help, man. This is, this is big. This is not small. This is big thing. So, yeah. You know, we could probably keep talking for a long time here. A couple more hours. <laughs> but I think in addition to all that you said, I mean, just, just a, se- a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned ordinary but extraordinary. You know, I think what I think really sets you apart from so many is, you know, you, you are ordinary in that you're, you're like so many of us, but you are extraordinary in the way that you go beyond that to make it so much more, to make your life so much more, to make your relationships so much more to make the, you know, the meaningful connection that you have with everybody so much more. I've, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people over my life and you are one of the truly extraordinary ones in your ability to do that. And, you know, just in this little bit that you've shared today, it's been pretty moving and, and it's made me think about some stuff. I mean, you know, we still have a lot of stories I think we need to share because there are some things here that I didn't know that I was able to discover today. So that was what was fun for me. So I just wanted to thank you for this opportunity to interview you and also thank you for this space that you've created with your podcast where people get to share as much as they, they want. Yeah. And that, that not only helps you, but helps them too. Yeah. So thank you for all of that. You bet. I just want to tell you, know, you when you listen to the podcast, there's going to be people on there that don't believe the way you believe. There's going to be people on there that, that you do agree with and believe. But it's very important to know that everybody's story is their story. The story will teach people in and of itself. And I don't agree with everybody on the podcast. They don't agree with me. But the important thing is that they get their story out, their story. So the agenda is them. So, yeah. Thank you. And I'm so honored for you to interview me. I've learned a lot and I've learned a lot from you. I just can't, there's no words to describe how much I've learned. And I just thank you. You put up with me and I appreciate it. Well, I do put up with you. (laughs) Me and Jill. (laughs) Yeah, me and Jill put up with you, but I appreciate you and your family. And thank you so much. I love you, Ken. Thank you. you Thank you, John. And thank you, Ken, for sharing. As Ken's wife, a few of my takeaways include, it is wonderful to be acknowledged publicly the way he acknowledges me at home, but enough about me. The other thing that struck me is how much he has healed emotionally from the near-death experience of his pulmonary embolism. He did not even mention all the ologists announcing to him that they couldn't believe that he was still alive and the three days he spent in ICU. It was a traumatic time for our whole family, but it is definitely a part of history now. Additionally, I loved that John really brought out how much Ken loves people and serves. I have said for decades that his headstone will say he believed the best in everyone. And lastly, I loved what he said about this podcast. He said, I don't agree with everybody on the podcast and they don't agree with me. But the important thing is that they get their story out. It's their story. So thank you to everyone who listens to this podcast and who has been on the podcast. We can't wait to see what the future brings. Thank you for listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with Ken Castrico. If you want more of this or want to learn more about my community, go to www.endurancelead.com. That's www.endurancelead.com. And make sure you hit that follow button so that you don't miss another episode. 
Thank you for listening. And if you found this podcast inspiring, please leave a comment and share it with a friend.